0: So let's just welcome Mike up here, and I will just shortly pray for him. And Mike, um, you were, i got the sense that you really like uh, chocolate, and—and uh, uh, and I just have a confession. I did have some chocolate on the first evening, and i didn't I didn't get it to give it to you, so I have a gift for you. Here it is, and I hope for your forgiveness. Uh, but then, at two o'clock tonight in the I mean when I was sleeping, God suddenly woke me up, and uh, he was saying to me, "Thomas." Yes, there will be chocolate in heaven. But that's not the only thing there will be. And you have to help Mike. You have to prepare him for, he- for the other part of heaven as well. And what God told me at night was that there will be carrots as well. So I do have... I want to prepare you for heaven. I just, it's a gift from God. I, it's a gift from God. We'll pray. Just a quick prayer. God, I want to thank you for Mike, for him coming here and serving us. Thank you that there will be chocolate and there will be carrots in heaven. And I thank you that Jonas Wingigo will win today. Amen. <laughs>
1: I worry about your theology. (laughs) Do you read the Bible? I'm not putting that on there. The worship leader can have the carrots. (laughs) Worship leaders deserve carrots. (laughs) Well, good morning. Um. <laughs> um. When I go somewhere I've not been before, usually the first meeting, um, when I make silly jokes, uh, people get worried. You know, when I look, and I've had moments where people thought, "Oh my word, he's really angry," and and then by the third meeting, they've they've worked it out. You have worked it out, haven't you? (laughs) All right, that was great. Um, And milk, chocolate, that's lovely. Um, What I want to do, just keep an eye on the time. Oh, wow, I need to go fast. Uh, What I want to do this morning is talk about something that I think is a longing for many, many of us Christians for many of us who are followers of Jesus. And uh, certainly for me, and I think probably for nearly everyone here, uh, there are two things we long for. Uh, First of all, uh, we long uh, for greater intimacy with Jesus. We long to be closer to him, to know his presence more more nearly and more dearly. And secondly, uh, we long to see more of the miraculous uh, in our lives and the lives of those around us just like that story that we heard. We long uh, to see God moving, as we saw in the New Testament, as we saw in the Acts of the Apostles, not in order to entertain us, but because people need to encounter Jesus and the power of his love. It's not just about power, it's about the power of his love. And so if we want those two things, greater intimacy with Jesus and also greater move of his spirit, if we want to use those terms, then I think there is one missing ingredient in the life of many of us in the church, and I want to talk about that. And I want to begin with Jesus' first ever miracle. And I love it that Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine by the litre for a wedding party. It's a a great story. But anyway, there's just one aspect of the story I just want to look at. John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, isn't that typical of a mother? Isn't that what they do? They don't tell you what they want, do they? So they they don't say, um, can you bring the shopping in from the car? They say, oh, there's a lot of shopping in the car. They don't say, can you load the dishwasher? They say, oh, the dishwasher needs loading again. Jesus' mum was no different. They've run out of wine. And Jesus responded like any normal teenager, what's that got to do with me? (laughs) In fact, Jesus said, woman, (laughs) why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. What a strange response. They've run out of wine, My hour has not yet come. Now, what does that mean? There's another four times in John's gospel which refers to Jesus' hour, uh, Jesus' time. And all the other four times, it refers to the hour of his death, to his time on the cross. So another way of translating this is, son, they've run out of wine. Mum, it's not my time to die yet. Now, you know, when I first became a Christian, when I was uh, 15, two months before my 16th birthday, and I read this, I thought, that's a good line. I thought, I'm going to use that line. So the next time my mum said to me, Michael, I want you to tidy your room, I looked her in the eye and I said, Mum, my hour has not yet come. (laughs) It didn't work well for me. It didn't work well for me. Uh, But Jesus uh, says, it's not my time to die yet. And the reason he said that is because as any single person at a wedding, he would have probably been thinking what he would need for his wedding. What he would need to do for his wedding. And in Jewish weddings of those days, the bride and her family arranged everything except one thing. The only thing the bridegroom had to provide, oh, as, actually, as well as the home, uh, the only thing for the wedding day and the celebration the bridegroom needed to provide was wine. And this stupid bridegroom, he couldn't even manage that. You know, he, the one, his, your one job, you idiot, was to provide enough wine. And I wonder if Jesus was thinking, at my wedding, there'll be more than enough wine. Because the wine is in my blood. They've run out of wine. It's not my time to die yet. When I get married to my bride, there will be more than enough wine. And you know the crazy thing that I, I've, I've never liked about this story is Jesus does the miracle, but the idiot bridegroom who made the mistake gets the credit. Have you noticed that? You know, Jesus does the miracle. And the master of ceremonies says to the bridegroom, oh, you've left the best wine till now. This is amazing. This is stunning. And the bridegroom says, oh, yes, yes, of course, of course. And I'm thinking, shut up. You got it wrong. You get the credit for what Jesus did. That's the only way any of us get to heaven, by taking the credit for what Jesus did on the cross. He did it. And we receive it. And um, anyway, that's just a little bit extra. I won't go any more into that. But straight after, Jesus says to his mum, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. We read this. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. And that's the title of this morning's talk. Listen to Mary and do whatever he tells you. Now the way we've translated do whatever he tells you as Christians is like this. Do whatever he tells you when you agree with what he tells you. Do whatever he tells you when what he tells you doesn't seem too risky. Do whatever he tells you when you understand what he tells you and why. Now that isn't obedience, that is agreeing with Jesus Obedience is doing what he tells you when you don't understand, when it doesn't make sense, when it's too scary and you really would rather not. That's where obedience comes in. And for the disciples, that happens straight away. As soon as Mary said, not the disciples, to the servants, as soon as Mary said to the servants, do whatever he tells you, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And there were six big stone water jars. He said, fill the jars with water. Now, if I was one of the disciples, I would have gone up to Jesus, sorry, one of the servants, I would have gone up to Jesus and I would have said, "Uh, excuse me, Mr. Christ, but I was listening to what your mum said to you and she said to you, they've run out of wine. What we have is a wine deficit not a water shortage. We have loads of San Pellegrino. What we need is Chateau Neuf de Pape. <laughs> and if I had said that to Jesus, he would have said to me, Excuse me, Pilavarci, but I heard what my mum said to you do whatever I tell you. Why are we filling these jars with water? It's wine that we need. But they did it anyway. They obeyed. And then it gets worse. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. I imagine the servants, oh no, we're just slaves. We're going to take dirty water from one of these jars and put it in a wine glass and give it to the master of the banquet. He's going to think it's wine. He's going to drink it, spit it out, and then we're dead. Well, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And I think once again they picked on the smallest servant, the youngest one, and they said, "You go do it." And all the others would have they would have hidden behind a settee, and and he would have gone trembling. Oh no, this is so bad. This is so bad. And they were wait for the explosion. Wait, wait, wait. And then he gives it to the master of the banquet, and he drinks it, and he suddenly says, "Stop." And they're all. And he says, oh my word, this is, this is Chateau neuf de Pap. This is stunning. This is, oh, and then before they knew it, all the guests were drinking the dirty water and they were all going, yes, undertones of blueberry and licorice. Oh, yes, oh, this is such, such great wine. And the servants were the only ones that knew. It says in this passage, But the servants knew. They were in on the secret with Jesus. And they were looking at each other and they were saying, they're all drinking it like it's top quality wine. We know where it came from. It's dirty water. Uh? And don't you just know in your spirit that at that point, Jesus, it doesn't say in the text, but it, it must have happened. At that point, Jesus turned to them and went like this. Don't you know he would have gone like that to them? You see, they were in on the secret with Jesus at the point of their obedience when they didn't understand when it was scary. At that point, they had the greatest intimacy with Jesus. They and Jesus were the only ones in on the secret. And at the point of their obedience, they saw a miracle. And they were the only ones at the time who understood it was a miracle. That's how it works. I just want to turn to our second passage. And um, it's in Matthew chapter 14. Jesus just just fed um, 5,000 people with with a little boy's picnic. And then we read this in verse 22. Uh, Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side. Now, I have read this story, I don't know, in in my years as a Christian, hundreds of times, and there are things I didn't spot for years. Here's the first one. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. He made them get into the boat. Now, that in the Greek is a strong term. It, it wasn't a... Uh, 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 would you mind getting into the boat, chaps? It it, it would have been something like this. Hey, boys, um, uh, I just want you to get into the boat and row overnight to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I've got some things to do here, and then I'll join you over the other side in the morning. Oh, how are you going to get across, Jesus? Um, Don't worry, I've got my own transport. I've got it sorted um jesus uh, the, the boys and i we've been looking on the weather forecast on the internet and it says bad storms overnight sea of galilee and as you know some of us are fishermen and this is where we do our job not a good idea to go through storms in the middle of the night No, no no so what we'll do is we'll stay here tonight and we'll go over with you in the morning get in the boat he made them get in the boat sometimes Jesus deliberately sends us into storms. Why? Not because he hates us, but because he loves us and because he knows that it's often in the middle of the storms of life that we come to greatest intimacy with him. Because that's when we're desperate, That's when we know we need him. That's when we know we can't do it on our own. That's when we reach out to him. And he longs for that for our sake. And that's the place where we see miracles. So the disciples got in the boat and uh, they started rowing. And uh, sure enough, there's a big storm and they're afraid. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Now, have you noticed how many times in the Gospels the disciples don't recognize Jesus when he comes to them? Most of the other times are after he rose from the dead. Uh, This time, it it was, and that time, it was when they were filled with disappointment, When we're full of disappointment, we don't recognize Jesus often when he comes. On this occasion, they were filled with fear. And that's the other reason we often don't recognize Jesus when we're full of fear. So what does Jesus do? He speaks to them. Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And there's three phrases there, the two on either side. Take courage and don't be afraid. Uh, They're very similar And I think they're like two pieces of bread in an English sandwich. You know, they're there, and the the peanut butter in the middle is, it is I. It is I. The reason we can take courage and not be afraid is because it is I. Because he is with us. He is with us. And so he says that. And then I just want to read the next bit. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Now, I love Peter. I love him. He was so impetuous. And this was one of those times. And, you know, I, I imagine he got so excited when he realized, oh, it's Jesus. And before he could stop himself, he said, oh, if that's really you, let me come to you on the water. Oh. And before Peter could say, oh, only joking, (laughs) Jesus says, come on then. And I imagine the other disciples, off you go, Pete. You opened your mouth again. Let's see you walk through the waves. Go on then. Now listen to what happens next. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Now, do you know, for years and years and years, I have read this story as Peter's great failure. You know, he got out of the boat, he started walking towards Jesus, he took his eyes off Jesus, he saw the wind and the waves, he got scared and he started to drown. And the way I've imagined it, this is how I've imagined the story. Peter takes his eyes off Jesus, he starts to sink, he starts to drown, and he's going under and he's flapping and he's going, la 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 la. <laughs> and then Jesus suddenly thinks, oh no, Pete's drowning. What do I do? I need him for the acts of the apostles. And so then Jesus dives into the water and does the front crawl and gets behind Peter as he's going down for the last time and he uses a life-saving technique. He learned at Nazareth swimming pool when he was a teenager and he shouts to the other disciples in the boat, quick, get the rubber ring, Throw ropes over. Pete's drowning. We need to save his life. I need him for the acts of the apostles. And then they get Peter into the boat. Jesus gets into the boat following him, dripping wet, soaking wet. He puts his knee on Peter's chest. And then he gives him mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And then as Peter splutters back to life, Jesus, with his knee on his neck, says, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? that's how I've read it for years. How did I read that from this for years? How did I get there from here? Listen to what it actually says. I've realized this was not Peter's great failure. It was actually Peter's great success. It was his great moment. I think he lived off this story for the rest of his life. church planting parties. They would have asked him, Peter, uh, tell us about your walking on the water with Jesus. I bet they did. And I bet Peter was like, oh no, I've told this story so many times. I can't believe I've got to tell it again. Oh my goodness. First of all, let me tell you what actually happened. (laughs) Peter starts to walk on the water towards Jesus. He Takes his eyes off Jesus, yes. He starts to sink. But the very first thing he does immediately, he says, Lord, save me. If it was me, I would have immediately tried to save myself. Then I would have tried to get my friends to save me. Then I would have called the lifeguard. And I might have prayed as a last resort. First thing he does is he says, Lord, save me. What does Jesus do? He reaches out his hand and he catches him. He takes Peter by the hand and he lifts him up. And Jesus and Peter walk back to the boat on the water holding hands. The greatest intimacy. They're walking on the water together holding hands whenever, whenever you feel you're sinking. Lord save me. He'll hold your hand, and he'll walk through the storm with you. And, 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 and I just imagine, you know, for years, Peter saying, oh, do I really have to tell this story again? Oh, okay, gather round, everyone, gather round. I'm going to tell my walking on the water with Jesus story. Well, uh, how, do I, how do I begin? Well, we were on the boat going across the Sea of Galilee, and it was, it was a bad night, and may I tell you, the boys were frightened they really were and then jesus came to us walking on the water through the waves and and bless them the boys didn't recognize him and then i said oh jesus how nice to see you would you like me to join you on the water even though it's a storm and jesus said be my guest be my guest And so I got out of the boat and I started walking towards Jesus. Now, I can't remember the details of the next bit. Um, It's all a bit hazy, but to cut a long story short, uh, Jesus and I ended up going for a walk on the Sea of Galilee, holding hands. Did I mention we were holding hands? Yes, the Lord and I, we we were just talking. Oh, what a lovely sea this is. And what did it feel like, you ask? Well, how do I describe it? I mean, there's only two people. In history, who have ever walked on water, and that is the Lord Jesus and myself. And of course, Jesus has gone back up to heaven. So I suppose I'm the only one left who can describe what it means to walk on water. Well, it was firm but it it was rubbery. It was, it was like a gentle roller coaster. I don't know how else to describe it really. It was, it was liquid, but it was solid as well. It was just, it was a lovely feeling, like, like a carpet really. And, um, and we were walking along. I mentioned that, didn't I? Did I, did I mention that? We were uh, we were holding hands. And, and we were, we were holding hands, the Lord Jesus and I. And to be really honest with you, I can't tell for sure whether he was holding me up or I was holding him up. I mean, <laughs> do you know how I know he would have said that? Because I'd have said that if I was him. And so would you. And, and you know, and he would have said that. And then, And then Peter would have turned to the other disciples and he would have said, um, uh, uh, Andrew, James, John, is there anything you want to add to the story? Oh no, sorry, I forgot. You never got out of the boat, did you? No, it was just me that got out of the boat and walked on the water. At the point of Peter's obedience, come, he came. He had the greatest intimacy with Jesus. The greatest intimacy. They were holding hands in the storm. And he not only saw, but he was part of the greatest miracle. I'm walking on the water with Jesus in the storm. Now, if if Jesus and Peter were holding hands, do you think it's possible that Jesus would have said to Peter, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Why is it we always give God an angry voice when we read the Bible? Why do we do that? I think he said it more like this, oh Pete, why didn't you trust me? Did you think I was going to let you drown? You need to learn to trust me, Pete. I wasn't going to let you drown, you silly sausage. I was, in the future, trust me. It was more, it has to have been more that tone, that tone. There's a book that's been doing the rounds in Christian circles uh, for years now. And there are some Christians who believe that you're not a proper Christian unless you've read this book. And I'm not talking about the Bible. It's another book called The Five Love Languages. Have you read it? I thought some of you would have read it. I bet you've read it, you and your carrots. Um, I suppose that's how you you people win the Tour de France, by eating carrots instead of chocolate. Oh, yes, because we're so healthy. We uh, just ride bicycles. Anyway, sorry, I just needed to vent there. Oh, I feel better now. Um, don't ever give me carrots again. Uh, anyway, <laughs> hmm. do you know if you didn't find me funny, I, 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 I still find me very funny. <laughs> I've been telling the, st- <laughs> <laughs> I've been telling the same jokes for thirty years, and, and I still have a chuckle. <laughs> it's really sad. What was I? What was I saying? what was I oh yeah the five love languages and basically this book says that we all operate in one or two of five love languages for some of us uh, the way we express love and the way we receive love is through touch uh, physical contact for some of us it's through gifts for some of us it's words of encouragement and affirmation with some of us it's quality time and with some of us what's the fifth one acts of service, you've obviously done the book, (laughs) acts of service, and and you know, when I first read that, I panicked, because I thought, oh no, none of these is one of my five, one of my love languages, I don't have any of those, what's wrong with me, because I thought my love language, I have a sixth one that's not in the book, my love language is food, tell me you love me, go stick your love somewhere else. I'm not interested. But buy me a chicken sheesh kebab and I'm yours for life. (laughs) Did you know, did you know that God has a love language? His love language is obedience. How do I know? Because he says so. If you love me, you will obey my commands. You're my friends if you do what I command you. And this is not a heavy thing. This is not a burdensome thing. This is a joyful thing. This is an act of intimacy. This is an act of friendship. This is, this is, this is the most wonderful thing because in that place, you get to hold his hand. In that place where you're out of your depth, you see the most amazing things happen. In that place it releases his power in a fresh way. John 15, both of those quotes are from John 15. Now, um, I have in England a friend who's also a Greek called J. John, and uh, he's an evangelist, and people call him an anointed evangelist, which I've never understood, um, uh, except that um, um, when he preaches the gospel, a lot more people become Christians than when I preach the gospel. And that really annoys me. It really does. And I've complained to the Lord about it. You know, I mean, I've said to the Lord, I said, why do loads more people become Christians when he preaches the gospel than when I preach the gospel? It's not fair. I've heard his talks. They're all right. But so are mine. And I, I, I never understood it until a while ago. Um, one Monday morning, uh, John lives near me, and he phoned me and mondays are my days off and he said, "Mike, uh, I want to take you for lunch uh, today to a restaurant Now, I want you to know those of you that have not met me before that i 'm a man of principle i live there are principles by which I live my life i 'm not like some of you um, who would just be washed away by every wind and blown this way and that way. No, you know, it's the Tour de France this week because one of our guys is leading. Um, you know, next week when he falls off his bike, we won't even know his name. But anyway, I won't go into that. But let's boast now, like we've won the Tour de France. And and, and But I live by principles. And one of the principles by which I live is this. I never, ever, ever refuse lunch when it is offered to me. So I said, okay. And John collected me about 12. We went to the restaurant. We went in. The waitress sat us down at the table. She gave us the menus. And then, and I was, I was starving. I mean, I hadn't eaten since about 11. I mean, I was really hungry. And uh, then John starts talking to her. And he says, hello, what's your name? And she says her name, and he says, my name's John, this is Mike. And then he says, "Um, how long have you been working here? And she tells him, and he says, what would you want to do with your life? And I suddenly thought, oh, no, you're not, are you? You're not going to try and convert her. Oh, please. And then she says, and then he says, would you like to know what I do? And she says, okay, and he says, I'm an evangelist. Can I tell you what an evangelist is? I thought, you are, you're going to try and lead her to Jesus. And I was wanting to go under the table, and I wanted to shout at him, J. John, shut up. Let her go to hell. I want my lunch. (laughs) That, that is why J. John is an anointed evangelist, and I'm not. Because he tells people about Jesus before lunch, on his days off. And you know what? He gave her, before we left, he gave her a New Testament and a copy of one of his books. I mean, he goes round everywhere with his books to give away. And she promised she'd read them and he'd come back in a month and they'd have coffee together and they'd talk about it. The anointing rides on obedience. It does. It does. I have noticed that the most anointed people in the area of their anointing happen to be the most obedient. Is it scary? Yes, it is. Do you always understand? No, you don't. Is it the most wonderful way to live? Absolutely. Absolutely. I just want to finish in the last five minutes we have by just telling you... uh, and I'm, I'm going to be honest about this. I, a few years ago, I felt the Lord challenge me and say, Mike, I want you to trust me. I want you, in, when you lead meetings, to depend on me more. And I didn't quite understand at the beginning what he was talking about. And I said, what, Lord? And he said, I, what you do is when I speak to you, you censor what I say. And you put it through a grid of... Um, how likely is it, how dangerous is it, and you don't say everything I tell you to say. And I want you to promise that you will obey me. Well, I said I would, because I got to the stage where my longing to see God move became greater than my fear of failure. And I worked out that if what I did was, if I wasn't sure if it was God or me, I wouldn't say it in case it was me. Now, if I'm not sure if it's God or me, I say it in case it's God. And uh, it's the only way I find out. You know, the first way, I never knew. So after I said yes, um, straight away I had an opportunity. I was in a meeting, speaking at a meeting. There were about 400 people there. And then um, right at the end of the meeting, as we were praying for people, uh, I felt God spoke to me. And when I say I felt God spoke to me, it wasn't a um, hear ye, hear ye, God calling Mike, are you receiving me? tablet of stone on its way down duck it wasn't like that the way it happens with me is oh I've just had a thought that's a funny thought why would I think that thought is that you lord or is it indigestion and in my case sometimes it is indigestion (laughs) and and but the only way I find out is saying it so So I had this thought and the thought was there's someone here who's struggling with, um, uh, they've got um, uh, like pins and needles and uh, on the left hand side of their face and it's rubbery and it comes and goes and they've had it for years and I thought that sounds like a migraine and they've got it now, I felt the Lord say, and there's 400 people in this room The odds of someone with a migraine in 400 on the left-hand side of their face, 50-50. I like the odds. I'll go for it. So I said it. And the Lord knows me. So do you know what he did? He waited until I said all of that, that bit. And then he added the last bit. Before I could stop myself, I found myself saying, And it's got something to do with your sister. And immediately, I turned around and thought, you stupid idiot. You had a 50% chance of getting it right. Someone with a fuzzy head on the left-hand side, a migraine. How can it have something to do with their sister? How can it possibly? Does their sister hit them over the head with a frying pan? You idiot. And then I turned around, and I saw this young lady standing at the front crying. And I said, what are you doing there? And she said, that's me. I said, that's you. How can it be? And then I said, I, and it's got something to do with your sister? She said, yes. She said, this is absolutely true. She said, it's not a migraine." She said, um, I was in emergency birth. Uh, I nearly died in the womb. And when they got me out, I wasn't breathing for a while. And it took them a while to get me breathing. And in the meantime, I got a bit of brain damage. And one of the main ways it shows is I keep getting a fuzziness Um, and pins and needles on the left hand side of my face where I can't feel it properly and it comes and goes and like you said I've got it now and then she said and the thing is my twin sister didn't make it she died in the womb they managed to get me out in time but not her and then she said and she started sobbing for the 28 years of my life I have felt guilty that I robbed my twin sister of her life, that the wrong sister survived, that I should have died and she should have lived. We could pray for her, and God released her from 28 years of false guilt. And I came that close to not saying anything. That close. That close. One more story, and then we'll stop. Um... There was a time, um, uh, it was a few years ago, at our summer festival uh, in England, there were about 8,000 young people at this particular camp in this big tent. And the night before, 200 came forward to give their lives to Jesus. And we were rejoicing that 200 young people became Christians that night. And then the next night, I was due to speak and uh, as the worship was finishing, I just felt the Lord saying, there's someone here who said to his friend at lunchtime, if they invite people forward to become Christians tonight, I think I might come forward and give my life to Jesus. Um, And then I felt the Lord saying, and his name is Sam. And I thought, okay, well I'll do my talk. At the end of the talk, when we're praying, I might say, if anyone didn't give your life to Jesus last night and you're ready now, why don't you come forward? And by the way, there might be someone called Sam. You said to your friend at lunchtime, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and then the Lord said, no, I want you to do it now. And I was like, really? Really now? Why can't it wait to the end? And I, I told, I, and I had an argument with God. I said, Lord, you've got things right so far, but I just wonder if on this occasion... You might need some advice. Um, what, if, what if there isn't a Sam? What if that said that and no one comes forward? What am I supposed to do then? I'll look stupid. How am I supposed to start a talk? What if there is a Sam and this non-Christian doesn't want to come forward in front of 8,000 strangers? You hadn't thought of that, Lord, had you? Uh-huh. And the Lord said, I want you to do it now. I want you to do it now. And I tried to start preaching, but I just couldn't. And I stopped after a few seconds. I said, I'm sorry, but I think the Lord's saying, there's someone here. You said to your friend at lunchtime, if there was an opportunity for people to come forward to give their lives to Christ, you would come forward. And your name is Sam. Where are you, Sam? We're going to wait for you. Why don't you come now? And then I stood there and I wanted to die. Nobody moved. 8,000 pairs of eyes stared at me. And I was like, I knew this was a mistake. I'll never do this again. Oh, Lord, get me out of this, please. Help me, help me. I'm drowning, I'm drowning. And then after ages, this kid stood up and people around started clapping. And he walked about 10 paces and then sat down next to a girl he obviously fancied. And I wanted to kill him. (laughs) And then I was like, desperate. I was standing there and I was like, this is a disaster. And it got to the stage, it was so bad that I prayed the prayer. I always pray when it's absolutely disastrous and nothing else will work. I prayed for the second coming. I said, I said, Lord, return now. End the world now. You've got to do it sometime. If you really love me, you will do it now. And, of course, he didn't return then, did he? Because if he did, we wouldn't be here, would we? (laughs) Although some of you might. (laughs) Um, That's a joke. It's a joke. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I'll teach you to give me carrots. Uh, And then I promise you, I promise you, after what seemed to me like ages, and I said, Lord, hold my hand. This kid, this guy got up from over there. He walked slowly down the aisle and when he got to the front he was shaking and I said are you sam he said yes i said did you say that to your friend at lunchtime he said yes In front of 8000 people we prayed with sam and he gave his life to jesus now <clears throat> afterwards i found out they told me afterwards that sam wasn't a christian his friend had invited him and had paid for him and sam was struggling with depression and he was taking drugs and um and his life was changed that night that night and as sam walked back i saw his friend running to him and the two of them were hugging and and crying together and here's the point i said to the lord lord Lord, why does it have to be so theatrical? Why couldn't it have waited to the end? Why did you put me through all that? You know I have a heart condition. (laughs) I'm Greek, so I exaggerate. And and I said all that. And do you know, the Lord answered, he answered, when Sam said amen to give his life to Jesus, 8,000 young people stood and clapped and cheered the Lord and Sam, and they wouldn't stop. And the Lord said to me, that's why. Because you were all rejoicing that last night 200 gave their lives to me. And I wanted to show you all that I will stop a whole meeting for one Sam. For one Sam. At the place of our obedience... We see the greatest miracles, and we have the greatest times of intimacy with God. However it, it works out in your life, go for it. There's nothing more wonderful, there's no better adventure than to go with Jesus like that. I think I've gone a couple of minutes over time, but why, why don't you, what? What? What did you say? I'm, I'm sorry, but can you stop asking me for money?
0: I, that's
1: just... You, I'm in the middle of a, a Christian meeting here, and you, you, I gave you money yesterday. Stop it. It's just terrible what you do. I mean, I can't believe it. Is that what they do in Aalborg or wherever it is you're from? Okay, we're going we're to pray. I'm not giving you any money. <laughs> Did you see how I, like a spider with a fly, <laughs> he came into my web perfectly. Thank you, Lord. You love me. I'm so happy. And Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters. And Lord, I pray that you would give us grace, that we would do whatever you tell us, that we would go on an adventure, that we wouldn't do it as out of a religious ritual, but out of a love relationship. If you love me, you will obey my commands. And Lord, we want to be your friends. We want to be your friends, not just your servants. I no longer call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. Instead, I have called you friends for everything I received from my father. I have made known to you. No secrets from you, my friends. You are my friends if you do what I command.